you'd want to run away. I'm quite sure that'd be the terrified reaction of most people if the international situation ever deteriorated so that nuclear war seemed inevitable or highly probable. Most of us would be packing a bag and jumping in the car. That's the problem though. Or it's just one of the problems you'll have in the countdown to nuclear war. In small, crowded, cramped Britain, If everyone decides to flee the city, then the roads are going to get jammed very quickly. Just look how bad it gets on a bank holiday, never mind the hour before Armageddon. Then, of course, there's a problem of where to go. Well, you're running away to the countryside, aren't you? Somewhere empty? Somewhere where there's only a row of houses and a pub? They're not going to bomb that, are they? Well, see my previous podcast, Fallout on the Farm, to see why the countryside doesn't offer you any kind of comfort or security. And what do you lose if you do run away? Well, according to Protect and Survive, the public information campaign, if you leave your house voluntarily, then the government have the right to take it and give it to any other homeless families. So you'll be stuck in a traffic jam, seeing nothing but bumpers, road signs and mushroom clouds, while someone else is settling into your house with its nice sturdy walls and roof offering cosy fallout protection. But there's one other whopping great problem if you plan to run away. And that's the subject of this week's podcast. Yes, the police have gone and blocked all the major roads. That nice, straight, smooth motorway taking you out of the city, out of the target area, into the pretty, breezy country air is now forbidden to you. It has become no longer a public motorway, but an essential service route. Not only was government advice urging us to stay put and remain in our own homes, but it was making it almost impossible for us to flee. Consider this article from The Guardian from October 1980 called Death Trap Cities in Nuclear Attack. It says, A Soviet nuclear strike would result in every major urban area in England and Wales being severely hit by radioactive fallout. This is according to the government's uh, square leg nuclear exercise. It goes on, It could in effect mean the death sentence for those in towns and cities in light of the government's instruction that people must remain at home. This is an order which would be backed up by armed guards on major roads. The government certainly didn't want us all blocking the roads in the run-up to nuclear war. Consider this very blunt advice from Protect and Survive. If you leave your home, your local authority may take it over for homeless families. And if you move, the authorities in the new place will not help you with food, accommodation or other essentials. You are better off in your own home. Stay there. 
So the advice to the public was clear. Stay where you are. Good news for the authorities, as it means the roads are clear for military and political use. And it reduces the problem, of course, of refugees. There won't be masses of panicked people fleeing towns and cities and flooding into the rural areas to overwhelm them, demand food and shelter, and perhaps cause civil unrest and anarchy. Because, oh, if there's anything the authorities dreaded in the post-nuclear world, it was the breakdown of law and order. Along the same lines, I found a document in the Scottish National Archives in Edinburgh which advised that homeless people should not be kept in large groups because a large group of people who are desperate, angry and panicked can be dangerous. No, keep them in malleable little clumps. Don't allow them to gather and spread rumour and panic and spark aggression from one another. A large and angry group is a threat to the ruling order. So, closing the major roads and calling them essential service routes, that does solve quite a few problems then for the authorities. Ah, but yes, you might think, the panicked population who are desperate to flee the cities will surely find a way. Just because a few motorways and A-roads have been cut off to them doesn't mean they can't just jump in their cars and pile into the side streets and the back roads. Well, yes, they might. And the authorities, they were cool with that. At a 1981 civil defence conference in Cambridge, the local councillors discussed this very issue. And according to Duncan Campbell's War Plan UK, they simply decided that any such refugees would just block the roads themselves. Quote, through traffic jams, fuel shortages and breakdowns. So when everyone piles into the smaller roads... They're just doing the government's job for them. Thank you very much. The roads will still be made impassable. It's easy, of course, to imagine traffic jams and the prospects of breakdowns would be increased also by the government's requisitioning of fuel. This task would be delegated to the police in the countdown to nuclear war. One of their tasks in the last days would be to guard petrol stations, ensuring that the ordinary public couldn't stop to fill up. Now that, of course hinders any self-evacuation plan, but the official reason was that supplies of petrol would be retained for official use. So if you were planning to evacuate and you managed to find an open road, you'd better hope there's a fuel tank of petrol in the car or you ain't going nowhere. These uh, rules for the police's role in controlling the public in the run-up to nuclear war, they're all outlined in a booklet called the Police Home Defence Manual of which I have a flimsy old pale blue copy. It was issued in 1974 and it described for the ordinary copper the effects of nuclear attack and outlined what their duties would be. I'm sure we'll do a podcast on the police at some point, but for now, let's just stick to the role in blocking the roads and controlling the petrol supply. The police, of course, have a staggering amount of responsibilities in the run-up to nuclear war, one of which is the switching on of the local sirens if they received the attack warning red signal. But two other duties were the control of essential service routes and the freezing of petrol filling stations. 
Now the booklet doesn't say how they would freeze the petrol stations. I assume it's enough to simply give an order to the owner and put up an official notice. That's certainly what we see in threads. We see lots of uh, stations with um, signs at the front forbidding entry to the general public. Uh, And yet the owner of the petrol station would still need to be on hand to give out fuel to any official essential users who came calling. How is he to determine who's essential and how would he dish out petrol to those people but not to the panicked, furious hordes also demanding service? I suppose he'd need a police guard. But you can hardly post an officer at every petrol station in the country. There simply isn't enough manpower especially at this desperate time when every officer would be needed. And when it comes to controlling the roads, the booklet says, quote, Police would give priority to keeping these roads open for the free flow of essential traffic. It goes on to say they'll help in planning and coordinating large-scale movements, which we can assume will be military movements or the shifting of supplies across the country. This duty continues after the bomb has dropped. They've still got to man those roads, assuming the roads haven't melted or disappeared under piles of debris. The booklet says they must control the essential routes in and out of damaged areas and also, quote, control the movement of homeless and others out of these areas, whether in vehicles or on foot. Now, that seems a bit harsh. Not only do the authorities not want you fleeing before the bomb, but they don't want you doing it after the bomb either. This applies even if you're in an area of heavy fallout, and so your survival depends on getting the hell out of there. Tough. They don't want you moving. The booklet continues, quote, Priority would be given to the essential service routes, which, so far as possible, should be kept clear of refugees and non-essential traffic. It goes on to discuss not protection of the public, but control of the public. How different things were in America. Of course, there's no direct comparison to be drawn between the US and the UK. America, of course, car ownership was much higher, and the space in which to escape was far greater. In Britain, if you flee the city... You only go so far before you end up in another bloody city. Whereas America, of course, has vast, wide-open spaces. So evacuation by car made far more sense in America. And it was even encouraged. Um, A lot of cities did civil defence drills where they practised emptying the place out. The car itself even became a kind of mobile fallout shelter in America. Or what were euphemistically known as expedient shelters. Quoting here from the book Bracing for Armageddon by Dee Garrison, which I highly recommend. Uh, This talks about using your car as a fallout shelter. It says, Expedient shelters were, quote, a euphemism for quickly dug trenches covered by a car parked overhead. Each type of covered, hole-in-the-ground fallout shelter was supposed to hold four people and be covered by four tonnes of hastily assembled dirt positioned over and around the hole before the nuclear bombs arrived. So basically you (laughs) very hurriedly dig a hole in the ground and then park your car on top of it and then scurry underneath and you crouch beneath your car until the fallout has decreased. Quoting from the book again, 
All that is needed for salvation, this is a sarcastic quote of course, all that is needed for salvation is four sandbags, 50 feet of strong twine, two long-handled pointed shovels, two bedsheets and two day labourers. The scheme requires eight hours to dig the car's grave. Inhabitants of these hastily constructed shelters would simply pile dirt around the area and hide in these holes for two weeks without sufficient air, food or water. So there we have plans in America to not only jump in your car and evacuate the city, but if the bomb drops whilst you're still en route, you simply get out of the car, dig a gigantic hole beneath it, and then scurry underground. And your car acts as a mobile fallout shelter, or as a huge big wheeled lid for your own car. In 1955, uh, the Americans published a booklet, a civil defence booklet, about using your car in the event of nuclear war, and it was called Four Wheels to Survival, Your Car and Civil Defence. It says that your car helps shelter you. Shelter in an unexpected blast is a bonus you get from your car. More importantly, the car provides a small, movable house. You can get away in it then live, eat and sleep in it in almost any climactic conditions, if necessary, until a civil defence emergency is ended. It says your car not only shelters you, but will also provide information using um, the car radio to receive emergency broadcasts. Of course, in America, um, in the, I can't remember the exact dates, 50s and 60s, every car radio, or every radio actually, that was manufactured had to have a marking on the dial which showed where you had to twist the dial to to reach the civil defence station. So you leap into your little mobile shelter, you tune into the civil defence station receiving the Conrad channel and you will get information about what's happening. You should also keep maps in your glove box so therefore it's a little uh, information booth for you also. It goes on to say your car can also be your shopping centre and that's because uh, quote, in an emergency, you may not be able to buy food for several days. Have an adequate supply on hand to make your family self-sufficient. So, of course, um, keep the boot filled with your tinned foods, your water and your first aid supplies. And then, very politely, it goes on to give a few cautions about civil defence driving. <laughs> of course, by civil defence driving, they mean driving like a bat out of hell to flee the city. Nonetheless, there are some nice rules of the road to be obeyed in the last few minutes of life. Uh, Quoting here, In an evacuation, only courtesy, cooperation and careful driving can prevent disastrous traffic jams. So that's quite interesting. In Britain, they were trying to create traffic jams or hoping for traffic jams to keep us off the small side roads. Whereas in America, they're trying to keep everyone nice and polite to avoid traffic jams. So it um, asks you to obey the police. Um, If you have room, pick up any walking evacuees. So I assume you just leave any crawling evacuees. Uh, It says, don't crowd or try to beat the other fellow. If your car becomes disabled, try to get off the road. If the traffic gets stalled, don't lean on the horn. Your impatience may become someone else's panic. That can cost lives. So that's four wheels to survival. A complete um, contrast in every way 
to what was being advised in Britain. But then, of course, we always have to bear in mind that America and Britain, they may have been allies, of course, but geographically, you know, it's another world. So naturally, the advice would differ. It's just interesting to see how uh, sharply it differs. You'll know that I always encourage people or invite people to ask me any questions they have about the podcast. I'm still recording it, obviously, just now, and I put a little teaser out on Twitter and Facebook about what today's episode will be about. And someone's already asked a question on my Facebook page, which is called Nuclear Britain. Someone has said, um, EMP, electromagnetic pulse, which of course is emitted um, by a nuclear detonation, would disable all cars, surely? And uh, we certainly see that in the film The Day After, in the famous scene where all the cars are packed tight on the motorway, trying to flee the city. And when the bomb detonates, the cars all immediately cut out, creating a massive traffic jam. Nothing works after the bomb goes off. And that's um, our popular perception of an EMP, electromagnetic pulse, and what it would do to machinery. I, I'm not a scientist at all. I don't know anything about cars. I don't even drive. But from the research I've done, it seems that EMP will harm modern cars more than old cars. Uh, And that's because modern ones, of course, are more dependent on very fancy, clever electronics. And those same electronics are vulnerable to EMP. Whereas an old bruiser from the 50s or 60s made up of lots of clanking machinery won't be as vulnerable. So that um, is a factor, whether your car is dependent on lots of electronics. Uh, The second factor which makes a difference is whether your car is actually running or not during the attack. If your engine is switched off when the EMP bursts, then it will be less likely to be damaged. That advice also applies to radios. Of course, the advice was take a battery-powered radio into your fallout room. But be careful during the attack to switch off, and that's for the same reasons, to protect you from the EMP. So you would have your radio on to receive the warning, of course, the four-minute warning. And then if you were on the ball, what you would do is switch the thing off. Once the attack was gone, and if you'd survived, you could switch the radio back on, and by doing that, you would have protected it from EMP. That's the answer to the question, wouldn't EMP disable all cars? Depends on whether your engine was running at the time, and depends on how many electronics uh, your car has and whether it's dependent on on those electronics to run. Um, If you have any other questions, of course, you can ask me through Facebook, the Nuclear Britain page, or ask me through Twitter. My account is at Julie A. McDevil, or of course, email me through my website, which is juliemcdevil.com. Before I go, I want to apologise for not doing a podcast last week. I know that I've been very erratic over the past month, I think, Um, To be blunt, I've been ill with depression. I'm not saying that for sympathy, and I'm not saying it for the cringy reason that some celebrities give, where they say, I'm speaking openly about my depression to try and inspire others, blah, blah, blah. I don't... I'm not doing it for that reason. I'm not arrogant enough to think that I would be able to inspire anyone. I'm just being honest. And especially because some people, uh, some of my listeners, pay money every month. They donate some money towards the podcast through Patreon. I think I've got 32... 32 kind people who donate a bit of money each month to the podcast. So uh, obviously I felt guilty for not doing it. So here's my apology and my explanation. But I'm feeling better and hopefully I will continue to feel better. And thank you to the patrons for sticking by me with their hard-earned cash. 
Thank you to everyone else, of course, who listens every week and offers me support and encouragement and a bit of nuclear chat on Twitter. It's always appreciated. And, of course, let me thank uh, my patrons who pay $3 a month or more. They get the inestimable reward of having their names read out here as a thank you. (laughs) So thank you, everyone, for sticking by me. And let me say thank you particularly to Angus McClellan, Ben Capper, Brian Outlaw, Claire Brennan, Colin McGee, Damian Ryan... Douglas Greenshields, Gordy McNair, Jonathan Abelins, Kieran Taylor, Lainey Peterson, Lee Pierce, Mary Freer, Paul Jonathan Viner, Paul Maxwell Walters, Peter Lee, Peter Mars, Phil Catling, Richard Grundy, Sarah Williams, Sean Judge, Sean Milson, Simon Allison, Steve Sace, and Wynne Grant. Today it's a sunny day. Uh, David is away to Sainsbury's and he's going to bring back. Pringles and angel cake. <laughs> uh, so my spirits are feeling much better. Um, the hard part, though, is if anyone out there has t- suffered depression, they will know. The hard part is maintaining um, a good mood. When your mood is lifted, you are able to get work done and everything seems achievable, but that can very quickly disintegrate. <laughs> but thank you, everyone, for sticking with me and the podcast and for listening. Any questions, as I said, get in touch, Twitter, Facebook or my website. And I'll leave you with some really annoying traffic noise and cars beeping and sirens blaring. I think that's preferable to the silly wee theme tune that I used to have. Uh, I'll be back next week with another podcast um, and I'll see you all then. Thanks for listening now. Bye bye.